What predicts the path of a human life? The big stuff, family, education, community, or the little stuff, random moments? He said, what do you think about robbing a bank? My response was, yes, this is a great idea. Looking for patterns, this week on Invisibilia from NPR. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. You can know every single ingredient in a piece of chocolate cake, but then when you sit down and eat it, you just feel that rush of joy. And in the same way, I know a lot about love. I know a lot about marriage. I know a lot about adultery and divorce. Know something about the brain. Now certainly know, hopefully know something about evolution. But I'm just like you and everybody else. When it hits you, you're off to the races. You know, I, there's been times that I've walked towards the phone saying, don't call him, Helen. <laughs> this isn't a good idea, Helen. As I'm punching the buttons on the phone and calling him. So bottom line is, there's been times when I sort of met a man who I could have really loved. And I knew immediately, no, no, don't go there. Whereas I think if you don't know how powerful love is, you might try when in fact, it's not the right idea. Helen Fisher knows how powerful love is as a leading anthropologist explorer on the new frontier of seeing inside our brains when love and sex happen. In her TED Talks that have been viewed by millions of people and the research she does for Match.com, she wields science as a sobering, if entertaining, lens on what feel like the most meaningful encounters of our lives. In this wonderfully personal conversation, Helen Fisher reveals how we can take this knowledge as a form of power for giving conscious new meaning to the thrilling and sometimes treacherous human realms of love and sex. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Helen Fisher is a senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and chief scientific advisor to the internet dating site Match.com. I spoke with her in 2014. I always ask whoever I'm speaking with um, if there was a religious or spiritual background to their childhood, like however you might define that. Mm-hmm. None. None, I really? had no religious education at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in an entirely lily white Christian community in Connecticut. And when it came time for um, Sunday school, my father said to me and to my twin sister, I'd be happy to take you to the church on my way to play tennis, <laughs> but you're going to have to find your own ride home. Okay. And so I went once mm-hmm. and got a ride home with Margot Eberman's family, and that was it. The rest of my Sundays were spent playing with my twin sister, and I never went again. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm actually going to a church right now up in Harlem, and I, I originally went for the gospel music, but this particular preacher actually says something. I'd like to have an experience in which I come home thinking about something. This is one of the reasons that I love the theater, particularly people like Ibsen, because you come away from it with ideas, ideas about yourself, ideas about the world. Yeah. Um, I, I happen to be an atheist, mm-hmm. and I always have been. I mean, I don't know if you've ever looked at the uh, Hubble telescope site on on the Internet. Yes. But when you take a look at what's out there, it's so staggering. Reality is so staggering. Mm. The real meanings of life for me are in 
reality, I guess. Yeah, well, that's one of those. You, you've, you talk a lot in your work about how we are kind of reversing 10,000 years of yes. habit. And I think, I mean, we're doing that in many spheres. And I think religion is not going to look the same in the next century as it's it is. That's a wonderful way to, I had not century. thought about that. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, so, where do you trace really the, I'm just curious, you know, can you trace the earliest origins of this, of love and romance and this drive in us as something that you had this special curiosity about that you started to pursue? You know, people have always asked me why I study love. Mm -hmm. And as this is in hindsight, I'm an identical twin. And long before I knew that there was a nature-nurture controversy, I was very busy trying to measure how much of my own behavior was biological and how much of it was cultural. And as a child, I was very interested in people. I, as I, I, I lived in this glass house, yeah, right. <laughs> and my neighbors lived in a glass house. And by the time I was six and seven, I would... Um, sneak into the woods and sit on an old stone wall and watch them eat dinner. Mm. And I've always been interested in why we're all alike as opposed to why we're all different. Mm -hmm. So when it came time for my PhD dissertation, I figured that if there was any part of us at all that we had all in common, it would be our reproductive strategies. It would be our sex lives, our romantic lives, and our, and our reproductive lives. So, you know, when I was reading about your research and what you're learning, um, you know, as somebody who has been married and divorced and, and, but also I think so many of us who are single, but not just single people, they kind of look around the world today at the matter of love and uh, it, it feels like there's just a lot of disarray. Now, whether there's more disarray than there ever has been, who knows? You know, maybe we know all the stories too much. I mean, obviously I think it is a time marriage and divorce has been in flux. One of the things that's interesting to me about your science is, you know, you do describe what happens in the brain as it has hallmarks of in temporary insanity, right? I mean, right. it's obsessiveness. I mean, I think right. you've said that is the, sure. the chief hallmarks of obsessiveness. I mean, and I just, I pulled out this this passage from a novel, and I know you also like to work with literature and poetry, Julian Fellows, who created um, Downton Abbey. But he, he wrote this novel, and I, th I just loved this passage when I found it. He said, lust, that state commonly known as being in love, is a kind of madness. It is a distortion of reality so remarkable that it should, by rights, enable most of us to understand the other forms of lunacy with the sympathy of fellow sufferers. <laughs> And yet, as we all know, it is a madness that, however ferocious, seldom if ever lasts. But paradoxically mad and suffering as one is in the heat of the flame, few of us are glad as we feel that passion slip away. You know, he goes on. What a beautiful, it's, what a beautiful. It goes beautiful. on, you know, is no, while most people have been at their unhappiest when in love, it is nevertheless the state the human being yearns for above all. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, parts of the brain uh, associated with decision-making begin to shut down yeah. when you're in love. <laughs> okay, Literally, and that makes yeah, so much sense. Yeah, the blood rolls out instead of yeah. rolling in, and so they begin to, begins to shut down. And of course, I mean, for obvious reasons, I mean, this brain system of romantic love, and I do th think it's different from lust. I do think they're very different brain yeah. systems. Right. Um, but uh, romantic love uh, evolved for that reason, to enable you to overlook everything 
in order to be with this human being. And of course, that's what you really need to do to start that mating process. Mm-hmm. Uh, because bottom line is, you know, if you have four children and I have no children, you live on and I die out. You know, the game of love matters. It matters big time. It, you know, it enables you to send your DNA on into tomorrow. And so we've evolved a brain system mm-hmm. and attachments, a very strong brain system too, but it's not as the same quite insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a different form of insanity, but... Uh, you know, it evolved to be so strong that some people will leave their community, they'll leave their town, they'll leave their family, they'll go to a different country, they'll learn a new language, they'll, yeah. you know, they will start all over with their lives to do this thing. And then you wake up a few years later, <laughs> you know, and um, people wonder why love, why that early state of intense romantic passion begins to die. Mm-hmm. And um, bottom line is, It takes a lot of metabolic energy. You don't eat. You don't sleep. You don't think about anything else. You focus on this person constantly. You change your hair. You change your life. You change your clothes. You change your friends. You you know, you you do a million different things in order to win and, and be part of this relationship. And you can't tolerate that forever. Not only will you run out of energy... But you can't really have a child sitting there in at, at dinner and the two of you racing around the dinner table after each other. Right. Well, <laughs> right. So, but so that's what I think, you know, and you have um, described all of this and what's happening in the brain in terms of this brew of neurotransmitters yeah. and hormones. Brew is a wonderful word. So interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it's a whole different set of qualities that we need to have that we need to be manifesting personally and also in that relationship in order to actually be good parents, right? That's exactly. And that's one of the reasons that I say to people, you know, don't marry him or her until some of that intensity is worn off. Really? So that you, you do really that. know more about who you're going to have a partnership uh-huh. with. It's very interesting because I now study personality and I read an article not long ago about the fact that you really actually don't get to know somebody very well until about 18 months are over. Mm-hmm. And of course, if it's in a good relationship, you keep learning things about them 30 years later. I yeah. mean, when their parents die, if a child dies, if you suddenly have to move or you lose all your money or you make a lot of money, you're, you're going to learn a whole lot of new things about somebody. I think that's one of the problems with American marriage. We somehow think that, you know, the minute you marry, you sort of lock the door and stay in, you know, in place. Whereas relationships right. evolve, yeah. and a good one is constantly evolving. Yeah. And was it Margaret Mead who said everyone should have three marriages, yes. even if it's to the same person? That, oh, how wonderful! Yeah, like that everyone should have three marriages, and even if it's the same person, that that the marriage has to become something new at yeah. a different stage in life. Oh, that's wonderful! I know that she said that the first one is for sex, the second one is for children, and the third one is for companionship. Yeah, and um, but I mean. But that, you know, so what's so interesting, again, about the way you're able to break this down is um, this first part of it, this falling in love part of it, this passion, this madness, which then leads to this commitment, is just instinctive. It's not only built into us, it almost takes us over. No question about it. It takes over the brain. It takes over the brain. But then this other part about the part about raising children, the part about crafting a long-term Love, right. moving into those next two marriages, if you want to use that analogy, we're so unprepared for. Well, you know, this is why, you know, when you said we were in a time of disorganization, yeah, and we are. I mean, we are shedding 10,000 years of our 
uh, farming background and all of the concepts that arose with that. I mean, the fact that a woman's place is in the home, women don't have a head for business, uh, men should be the head of the family, men should be the sole family provider, uh, till death do us part, all of that is vanishing before our very eyes, 10,000 years of these concepts. And so we were at this time of disorganization where nobody knows really how to how to go forward. Yeah. But it gives us great opportunities to build the kinds of partnerships that we really want. And one of the beautiful things about, you know, what you just said is that, okay, well, we're, we don't really know how to parent and we don't really know much about this person. And so what we're doing now is getting into relationships very slowly. Right. And that's the beauty of this. And these, that's these a one shift night, that you're seeing now. Yeah. These one-night stands, the friends with benefits, yeah. the living together before you're getting married. Yeah. More and more people are having children before they marry. Yeah. And so they are beginning to beginning to really understand a human being mm-hmm. before they they sink the boat, you know, into and, and, a and, mutual and, and, thing. I think it's important to dwell on that because what you are saying is that um, – you know, especially generationally, you can, and I, you know, I have children who are 16 and 20, right? And you can say... Boys, girls? A uh, boy, 16-year-old boy, a 20-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. Actually, she just turned 21. Um, and you can worry, but parents can worry about, the, as you say, the casual sex, the friends with benefits, which feels just really suspect and, you know, irresponsible right. and scary. Right. Um, but you're saying that that's not necessarily about them being flaky or casual but it's a manifestation of being cautious and not only being yeah being cautious really learning something about this person now i mean most people know all about contraception so that worry is should be no longer with yeah, us yeah and uh, most people know about disease and so that yeah. they should be able to monitor that mm-hmm. and so some of the, the 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 riskiest parts of living with somebody are gone. And of course, um, you know, parents are now accepting their children living with somebody, so mm-hmm. they don't even have the social stigma of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, their social circles are accepting it. So a lot of people, you know, almost intuitively reason, I've got no reason to not do this, and I got huge reasons to really get to know this person. Well, and especially when so many people now are growing up in homes where there was where marriages didn't pay, failed. Exactly. And or, they've, they've seen it well, around they, them. Not just them, but all right. their friend groups. I mean, if my, I think of my kids. And then there's this interesting thing that's happening now with the fluidity of family of, you know, all the forms of family. I right. mean, there is no model, right? right. You know? We're seeing a new form called, you know, that I call the association. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited about it uh, because um, it's groups of friends. And I, I live in New York. My both parents are, are deceased. Uh, my older sister lives in Europe. My brother's dead. And my older my twin sister lives in Europe. So mm-hmm. I really, Thanksgiving is a challenge for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm between men, so that's a real challenge. And so I have a group of friends who I see. Mm-hmm. And I see them regularly. And they're the ones that will come to the hospital if I'm sick. Uh, they're the ones that I will call to say that I made a speech that people liked, um, you know, and, and it's an association of friends yeah. that is my real family. And it's interesting how a lot of young people, they're much closer to their association than they are to their own family. So Christmas and holidays become very stressful for them mm-hmm. because they go home to families that they really don't know very well and who don't really know them. They don't know these people the way they know uh, the people they hang around with in New York City. So we're building new forms of family.
Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with anthropologist of love and sex, Helen Fisher. you've also paid any attention to something I'm aware of as a parent of teenage children and I hear a lot of people talking about is that um, even this romance piece seems to happen collectively in groups. Yeah. You know, dating is not what it used to be. Right. You don't invite the girl to go to a movie and dinner. You go out with a group of friends and then somehow people are coupled, but it's a very different pattern. And even that I think is cautious. Yeah. Not, I mean, first of all, they don't have a lot of money. And dinner mm-hmm. these days costs a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, once you start having dinner with somebody, you are expressing a genuine interest. Yeah. But if you casually go out with a group and you go all dancing and then you all end up having breakfast at 2 a.m. in some place and you can get to, you can get to know somebody, it's, yeah. it, it's the expanding pre-commitment stage. Uh-huh. And there is, I think, a Darwinian wisdom um, to that. It's interesting. I was talking to somebody recently who said that actually the dinner date is coming back. Yeah. But um, I haven't seen the signs of that. <laughs> no. Even among older people. I mean, you know, I'm older and I'm forming new friendships in, in a group. And that's exactly what's happening to me. There's a couple men in that group that I could be interested in, but mm-hmm. nobody's expressed anything. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> And just you don't goes know what group. the rules of the game are because it's a new game, right? It, it's a new game. Yes. Everybody has to make up their own rules, yes. which is both extremely difficult, but has great opportunity. Yeah. I mean, for example, with, the, uh, with technology, I mean, that is changing courtship. It's not changing love. I mean, once you, whether you meet them on Tinder or Facebook or, or Match.com or your girlfriend sets you up. Mm-hmm. When you meet that person in the bar or at the coffee house, your ancient human brain clicks into action and you court the way we've done it for millions of years. But bottom line is that courtship, you know, how you meet somebody, what the etiquette is. We're now building what Margaret Mead called taboos. Instead of rules, taboos. One of the new taboos is that um, 60% of people uh, on a date find it extremely rude if their partner, dating, dating partner, uh, pulls out their, and, their and phone, a, yeah, and does a text message huh. or, or uses their phone in any way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I do this annual study with Match dot com called mm-hmm. Singles in America, mm-hmm. and we don't poll the Match population; we poll the American population. Mm-hmm. It's based on the U.S. Census, and forty five percent of women research a date before they go out. Uh, about thirty three percent of men do. Far fewer men. Mm-hmm. We don't know why, really? but, but my hypothesis is that men are much more afraid of being accused of stalking. And so they're not going to do that. But what amazes me as an anthropologist is why doesn't 100% of both men and women research the date? Yeah. Because it's natural. I mean, for millions of years, we lived in these little hunting and gathering groups, and they would arrive at a waterhole, and some girl would see some cute boy at the other side of the waterhole, and she didn't know him. She'd ask someone about it. Her mother knew his aunt. Yeah. Her father knew his brother. Yeah. She knew what he was going to be when he grew up. She probably knew what his religion was. Uh, she probably even knew whether, whether he was a good shot or whether he had a good sense of humor. People for millions of years went into relationships, even on the first date, knowing a good deal about a human being. Okay. And we somehow think that it's natural to walk into a bar and know nothing about somebody and <laughs> unnatural to go onto a dating site where, in fact, it really is the reverse. And now we're sort of on our own. In the past, our parents, right? We don't you have know, those extended we don't have circles any of, people of those who extended, know them. you know. And 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 we are missing something, you know. I the the loss of local community. Everybody's yeah. very upset about divorce. Divorce has been around for a good four million years. Serial pair bonding is probably basic to the human animal. Series yeah. of partnerships, mm-hmm. but um, 
What is really unusual for me is the loss of local community. Mm -hmm. We have extended communities. We have our internet friends. We've got our work friends. We've got our people who we exercise with. We've got people who we go to a poetry conference with, whatever it is. But um, we don't have local community. Well, and the other thing I've thought about some over the years is how marriages are such lonely. You know, the nuclear family right. is very unnatural in human history for these same reasons, right? That marriages and families would have been embedded in networks of other marriages and other families and elders and cross-generational. So well said. So well said. And I think it's it's a, it's a like this death blow to marriage as an institution almost to ta- have it be this isolated Right. Where, the, you know, you have two people who right. are left to take everything out on themselves. You know, people are so upset about this, the, a single mother or a single uh, father. Yeah. I'm upset, like you are, about the, the two of them. Yeah. They're all by themselves. Yes. And um, it's so interesting. You know, I have a housekeeper who comes every two weeks, and I just adore this woman. And she's from Ecuador. And I asked her how many, you know, people she has for Thanksgiving. She has 50 people for Thanksgiving. <laughs> I couldn't scare up 10 <laughs> relatives. I couldn't do it. Yeah. But uh, there's something beautiful about And that's, of course, the way we live for millions of years. So, mm-hmm. you know, 100,000 years ago, if you divorced, okay, so he walked out of the little camp with his bow and arrow, and that was it. <laughs> but you still had your mother, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, yeah. a whole pile of people to support your child yeah, right. with you. right. Right. You had a whole local community, and right. that's what's really disappearing. And, and that's, that, that is a real mm-hmm. shame. And so it's part of this age of tremendous transition. Uh-huh. So one of the things I feel comes through in your TED Talks, um, you know, that this drive in us to mate and settle down is, uh, is just one of the most fundamental things about who, who we are. I mean— but, you know, when you talk about these new associations, right. um, whatever stage of life we're at, and I don't know if this is a true statement, but I think most of us, you know, at any given time, if we had a choice, you know, would you have a romantic sexual relationship, you know, or not, you know, you'd say sure. Right. But it's also possible not to be lonely right. without that right. and to have very rich Lives that are full of love. Absolutely. Not that particular form of love, right. but full of love, which, right. which doesn't have insanity attached, which can be exactly. kind of a relief. And, and, and you don't have to be annoyed if they leave their socks uh, right. on the floor one more time. Yeah. I mean, you so, know. So, I mean, do you think this is also, I mean, is this kind of a, it's a kind of a form of progress that we're charting, this new way of choosing our lives of love and association? I, I, I like the, I like, it's a wonderful idea. Um, the only thing I would disagree with is I'm not sure it's new. Uh, Maybe the association part is new because it was always family. Mm -hmm. And in that kind of, there's there's some beauty in that opportunity for choice. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you're getting at. We're we're moving back into a world where people can make choices. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would guess in hunting and gathering societies, there are older women who say, no, I'm not going for another old man. I'm going to hang around with the group and have a good time with right. my girlfriends. Right. And, right. and we're back at that. Whereas yeah. on the farm, um, they often married uh, the next day after a partner died because they needed somebody to milk the it's cows. It's so interesting and, to have that, that big, broad yeah. lens, that perspective. Right. Well, I remember even learning that 100 years ago or I don't know, up until the early late 19th, early 20th century – was it something like uh, the average marriage lasted for seven years? Because lifespans right? were so different. We right. could all hang on for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> right? 
<laughs> right, right, almost, no matter the marriage. Right. That's interesting that you know that. Um, I mean, very few people know that. Uh, the lifespan, by the way, has never changed. But the bottom line is so many people died in infancy and childhood and childbirth, yes. that, there was, that the average was, was reduced. But in the year um, 1900, the average marriage, I think, was 12 years. 12, yeah. And the, in the year 1990, the average marriage was also 12 years. But in 100 years ago, the marriage ended because somebody died. Mm -hmm. And these days, it ends because somebody divorces. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, I'm becoming aware as we're, we're speaking very... Um, kind of transactionally and biologically about about the institution of marriage and um, the the damage that gets done to children when right. marriages fail the way they fail these days um, is significant and those are the kinds of things that uh, I, you know religious people talk about in in sacred terms I mean it, it is you know thinking about marriage as an institution that is there to be nurturing and and in particular to be nurturing to the children and um, I mean, there's all this, there, like the religious view of marriage as a sacrament right. is, it doesn't really figure in the way you study marriage and look at marriage. And I just, I wonder if you ever have conversations with, um, with religious people. It would be very interesting. But, it, it, but because, have you uh, not, do people, do they people haven't ever, yet, but maybe you'll inspire them. Yeah. I mean, do you see that as just a, as as a way of thinking about marriage um, that is just completely removed from what you see and work with, or no, what would the I discussion? See it as a beautiful... What would an interesting discussion be for you? Well, just backing up, uh, hold that thought because yeah. that's uh, yeah. that's okay. something I really have to think about. What an interesting discussion would be. Yeah, but I think you've started it right now, and I don't see it as religion supporting marriage. I see the profoundly basic human drive to love and form marriages as, as, as so important that we've created institutions like religion to support it. Mm -hmm. So even more important than religion are these profoundly basic human drives to love. Mm. And religions then build on that drive to support that drive. Mm -hmm. But it's one of mankind's institutions that is very supportive of love. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what kind of conversation would I like to have with a theologian? Can you tell me? <laughs> well, I think maybe someone would say that they, you know, this capacity that we have, I mean, not just restricted to romantic love, but including that, is just one of the most ennobling uh, and defining characteristics of what it means to be human at its best. And... I think and they, I would agree, of course. Right, and when I think they might be disturbed that you're that the the scientific focus that you bring to it that it might feel reductionistic. What happens in terms of neurotransmitters and hormones and biology? And I, I mean, I wonder how you would great engage that discomfort. You have uh, you've just enabled me to say what if I when I die, what I'm going to say next is for me the one thing I would like humanity to remember. And that is, the more we know about the brain, the body, human evolution, about biology, the more we are, will come to understand the power of culture, 
to change that biology. Mm. Biology and culture and religion, they all go hand in hand. They're all parts of a huge, big system called humanity. Mm. And I don't feel that they threaten each other. I feel that they enhance one another. Mm. And that a truly religious person, if they have any imagination, can benefit from understanding that the love of God is in all of us in some form, that uh, is biologically based, it's not going away, uh, uh, and that it's part of humanity. So I don't see a big uh, dichotomy mm-hmm. that other people might see. I see a tremendous union between the intellectual, the spiritual, and the biological. I think they work together as a team. Listen again and share this conversation with Helen Fisher through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, in a wide-ranging personal conversation with the anthropologist, explorer of the science of love, sex, and marriage, Helen Fisher. She's well-known for her TED Talks and her research for Match.com, where she's chief science advisor. When we fall in love, it turns out, it's dopamine that makes us feel obsessed with the object of our desire, while chemicals released during sex activate a profound sense of bonding. Another thing from your science that I was applying to that is you talked about how casual sex doesn't really remain casual. It's not casual. Um, Unless and, you're so drunk and, and, you can't and why? remember it. And why? I mean, how you can explain it. It's because of what what is set off in your right. brain and your body conspires to make you start feeling attached to this person. Or in love. Or, or both. in love, yeah. Right. And, you know, I mean, any when you, when you have an orgasm, you get a real flood of oxytocin and vasopressin, and these are the basic bodily and brain systems for attachment. Right. It's like so, what mothers get when to, and they love their babies. Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, don't primal. have sex with somebody you don't want to feel something for. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, people can do what they want to do. I'm not in the should business. But the bottom line is, if you don't want to get attached to somebody, it's easier to not sleep with them. Right, because you might end up being attached to somebody who really does not fit into your life and I think as again in this new world I mean I grew up in a very uh, conservative strict um, southern Baptist you know small town where you were saving yourself for marriage right and this was just an absolute right Um, and and, you know now I kind of look back on that and see it as uh, Helpful in a way, like mm-hmm. it provided boundaries that were good, so that you right. didn't. I mean, I actually see these rules at a point. Right, human animal needs you boundaries. Know. Right, and here we are in a society now where we don't have any rules. 
Right. Nobody knows what to do. Right. And even in very religious cultures like that, where people are kind of crafting their path towards marriage with these religious rules, yeah. I still think all the messages that are coming at them about who you marry and about the romance of that are coming from movies with happy endings yeah. and, you know, all the love songs that yeah. we just, you know, that just were awash in right. at that age. I and I wanted to ask yeah. you about that because I, I guess one of my kind of deeper concerns here in this subject is that somehow, um, I love your idea that, you know, this knowledge is power and somehow our brains take us through these several very powerful stages to getting to the point of being with other people. But somehow we need to figure out how to be intelligent and caring in this matter of long-term love. And it seems like we have almost, it seems like our brains don't do that for us. It's such a good point because, you know, Americans love romantic love. Yeah. We just love romantic love. Mm -hmm. But we don't pay much attention to attachment. No. And it's very interesting. I was, I was on um, uh, some radio with a guy from China. It was a great learning moment for me because I was talking about romantic love and how you, how, you know, it's, you, you can remain in love long term as well as loving the person and you can sustain this long term romantic love in a deep attachment. And he said, why would you want to do that? <laughs> because right. they admire attachment. You know, or at least he did, and he was representing right. the Chinese right. perspective that, okay, romantic love comes and romantic love goes. What's really powerfully important is that feeling of deep attachment to yeah. a human being. Yeah. And at that moment, I said, oh, right, Helen, you've just been a member of your own culture and you've not realized that other cultures uh, historically— The attachment itself is a wonderful thing. That's what, that's what he was telling me. Yeah. And, and we celebrate romantic love and we do not really celebrate attachment. And in fact, you know— I remember a line from a poem that a friend of mine wrote, and which was, we are lied to by our love songs. Yes. Because yes. Um, they always end up with a happy ending. Yeah. But what is it about Americans that, you know, we've been lied to our, by our love songs. We want to believe it. We do see it in the movies, uh, a rejection. Mm-hmm. But um, we have a... Rose-colored glasses on. Yeah. And I just also feel like with all this change that we've talked about, with new up-and-coming generations, um, it being a complete matter of choice for them, right? And then the fact that we're all living longer. Right. I mean, we have so many decades, potentially, to to have, to be married, to have all kinds of relationships or to have a marriage that, you know, as Margaret Mead said, might evolve to be a few marriages to survive. Um, I just feel like somehow we have to grab hold of this and, and kind of become learners. I think the young are. You do? I mean, yeah. In this singles in America, not everybody, Mm -hmm. um, but in this singles America study that I do with, uh, with match.com, you know, we ask them, what must you have in a relationship and what's very important? And they must have somebody they can trust and confide in. They must have uh, somebody who respects them. They must have somebody who makes them laugh, which actually is very important biologically. I just love that. Because laughter it. drives up yeah. the dopamine system. It's very good for you. Laughter yeah. is very good for you. Yeah. They must have somebody who spends enough time 
puts, gives them enough time, and they must have somebody that they find uh, physically attractive. We are turning inwards. We are trying to build now the most important relationship. Um, and when I ask the questions, like, they're very um, in favor of, of marriage without children. They're in, very in favor of children without marriage. They're very in favor of living together. What they will not tolerate is commuter marriages, um, people living in separate homes, uh, people living in separate bedrooms. They want total transparency in the relationship. They want to be have access to the person's cell phone. Mm. They, um, a great many of them would walk out even on a date who uh, who uh, hides what they're saying on their phone uh, mm. or their texts. I think they're looking for a really special kind of, of relationship. You know, 100 years ago, sure, you had a nice husband and that was great, but you also had very profound relationships with your with all your other people in the local community. Yeah. And so the partnership didn't have the same profound intimacy mm -hmm. um, because it wasn't all you've got. Now your partner's really all you got. Mm -hmm. And so we want everything in that partnership. So That's rather deadly. than being um, <laughs> yeah. less serious about that primary relationship, I think we are profoundly more serious about it. I think, I think people are taking this very seriously. There's never been so many self-help books. There's never been so many therapies, therapists and couples therapists and mm -hmm. all kinds of support systems. So, so this systems. education is maybe just, it's, it's happening now. It's happening in real time. They, they, they don't want to fail. They've seen their parents fail. Yeah. They've seen their friends fail. They're scared of divorce. You know, 67% of, of singles these days are terrified of the economic and the and the social and personal yeah. uh, fallout from divorce, and we may see a real swing towards, uh, you know, really good marriages. Well, you know, I did this um, study of of married people. I asked these married people, uh, it was a thousand people in the in the study, a little over a thousand. Would you remarry the person that you are married to now? And eighty one percent said yes. So, uh, and seventy six percent said that they. We're still madly in love with this person. And I, I have uh, friends who've, who've done other similar studies and found the same data. So, you know, you're talking to an optimist. <laughs> That's probably <Yeah>. your problem. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with anthropologist of love and sex, Helen Fisher. Did I read that you were married once, but briefly? Is that right? I was only married for a few months yeah. when I was 23. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I married the wrong person. And, uh, actually, the night we decided to divorce was one of our best nights together. <laughs> And then, well, you know, I was a young hippie in graduate school. Okay. It was it okay. was the sixties. Okay, <laughs> and I have then made two very long, powerful, deeply meaningful, and successful relationships. I, I, I yeah, mm -hmm. I didn't marry him, but there was true love. Mm -hmm. So, how do you think all these things you know through your science, through your work? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how does it, how have you been able to work with that or have you? I mean, yeah. is there a limit to, you know, when we talk about the, the insanity part of yeah. of the reality of love? Um, 
I use the, um, I don't know if it's a metaphor or not, of, of a piece of chocolate cake. You can know every single ingredient in a piece of chocolate cake, but then when you sit down and eat it, you just feel that rush of joy. And in the same way, I know a lot about love. I know a lot about marriage. I know a lot about adultery and divorce. I know something about the brain. Now, certainly, know, hopefully, know something about evolution. But um, when it hits you, you're off to the races. You know, I, there's been times that I've, I've walked towards the phone saying, don't call him, Helen. <laughs> this isn't a good idea, Helen. Take control, Helen. Mm-hmm. As I'm punching the buttons on the phone <laughs> right. and calling him. So right. bottom line is, it, it has helped me, though. There's been times when I sort of met a man who I, who I could have really loved and almost immediately found out that they loved somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I knew immediately, no, no, mm-hmm. don't go there. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think if you don't know how powerful love is, you might try when in fact it's not the right idea. Mm-hmm. So knowing what I've known has helped me um, navigate. But the bottom line is I'm, I'm just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Do you have any theories about um, or any perspective on... It, it seems like the world right now, the world a lot of us inhabit, you know, Western, urban, educated people, is full of amazing single women. Yeah. <laughs> and men, fewer men who are single, and even fewer men who are as amazing or as appropriate. It feels like the world is out of balance, mm-hmm. I think. And, and, and again, I may be talking about a certain demographic group, but it, it doesn't seem like it's just, you know, 40, 50 and 60 year olds. It, it seems like it's harder for 25 year olds to know where to look for a mate. So what perspective do you have on that? Well, first of all, I wrote a book about the natural talents of women and how they're changing the world. Yeah. But I am also a big proponent of men. And I would say there's just as many amazing men out there as there are women in every age group. I don't think we understand men at all. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've spent uh, 50 years trying to bust a lot of myths about women. About women, right. And we have spent no years at all busting the myths about men. Yeah. But um, I have a lot of data with this Match.com Singles in America study that, and other data too, but that men are just as romantic as women are. You know, I lo- there's an old quote. It comes from a, a poem. It's borrowed from a poem by Ted Hughes. And I've doctored it a bit, but it's, men and women are like two feet. They need each other to get ahead. And we are built to work together, play together, love together, live together. And I meet an awful lot of single men in New York City. Mm. And they have brains and and they have feelings. They do love and they want to be loved. Mm -hmm. Men fall in love faster than women do because they're so visual. Uh, They want more public displays of affection. They want to introduce a uh, new partner to friends and family sooner. Huh. Uh, they want to move in sooner. And when you take a look at the brain, and we put, I've put a lot of men into a brain scanner, as I put a lot of women, it lights up exactly the same way when they're in love <laughs> and that deep sense of attachment. Yeah. I remember I was recently with a group of, of women from the major women's magazines. We were having a, a business lunch. And there were three women who couldn't find a man. They were all really good-looking, young, smart, educated, somewhere going somewhere women. And none of them could find a man. I said, you know what? He said, there's no men around. I said, I bet all three of you have at least one man in your life right now 
who would marry you within a week. You're picky. <laughs> you know? And yeah. the bottom line is, we're picky for a reason. Mm-hmm. We're the ones that are going to carry that baby for nine months. We're the ones that are going to go through the danger of delivering that child. We are the ones who are going to raise that child. Largely, I mean, the real day-to-day work for the first four years anyway, in, in every culture in the world. Now, men are changing diapers these days, no question yeah. about it. But still, they don't do it the way women do. Women have to be picky. Mm. Mm. But I think we're going to come to learn that men are just as romantic mm. as women and that women are just as sexual and that we're going to cast away these beliefs that men are just fools. That's really great. I uh, This has just been so... I haven't even looked at my notes. Oh, I guess if, you know maybe just one, one last thing. I and uh, this is me being this using this as kind of a therapy. Oh, <laughs> for wonderful! Myself. I'm not a therapist, um, but I'll uh, do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, just maybe two more questions. So, um, I like I'm in my fifties now. Okay, and I'm as in my sixties. In your sixties, yeah, and, and I mean, being in your fifties and sixties is just so interesting. It's and in so a way that I mean, it's great. It is great. Um, it's a little awkward though on this. You know, it's it's uncertain. I mean, the trajectory of all of this is different. And um, but one thing that I'm aware of myself is I feel like one of the things that comes with has come with age for me is I look back at my younger self and my love relationships, and and I was so I realized how much of it was about wanting to be loved, and how much mm. of the exhilaration was about being loved, mm-hmm. and I'm. I want to be more intentional moving forward about like the adventure of loving, you mm. know? I had an adventure recently that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. I fell immediately for a person in my business world. I would never touch that guy. He was very important in my business world. He's a happily married guy. Mm-hmm. And there was no way that Helen Fisher was ever going to put a move on him. Never. And I never did. Mm-hmm. And for the first time in my life, I, I would, I, every time I saw him, my heart would pound, I, I'd get a dry mouth, I, I, would, I, would, I would try to be a normal person. And I realized that I was going to have to enjoy this feeling all by myself. Mm-hmm. And I would come home and I'd lie down and say, okay, Helen, just enjoy the feeling of, he doesn't know, you never know. Mm-hmm. And try to just enjoy the sensation of adoring somebody from the back woods, you know, right. from the back right. pew in the church. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a different experience for me to not make any kind of move. Because mm-hmm. young girls do that, mm-hmm. you know. They say, ah. Or you think that it meant nothing if you couldn't make the move. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, but I, I do think that what goes around comes around. And if you and I and other people just you know, spend some time loving somebody. And it's interesting how they respond. I mean, you know, uh, a man and I sort of left each other a couple of years ago. And so now I don't have that intense need for him. I can love him in a, in the way he should have been loved all along. Mm-hmm. With a deep attachment, a real understanding for who he is, and just giving him the time he needs with other people, mm-hmm. not being all upset if I don't hear from him. Released from that passion, 
you can finally love somebody in in some new ways that are mm-hmm. that are can be very comforting not only for them but for you yeah and then you can build a new kind of of, of, of partnerships with them this just I just it just feels like what we're talking about is like this kind of maturation of yeah. Of our collective it's Too bad I didn't do it sooner. <laughs> yeah, well, that's how it goes, is maturation, yeah, right? I guess just, um, oh, finally, I just wanted to note, I did, uh, we, uh, actually, my, Lily, my producer, found this blog that you wrote. I, okay. I don't know if you've written it on it recently, but for a while. And you always signed it, Sempra Ad Astra, oh. always to the stars. Yes. And I just, you know, when I read that, I thought, I, you know, she's a romantic I am. She's a romantic. And so I wondered, oh, with this life you've lived and this work you've done, you know, how has the meaning of that term and that thing, being a romantic, evolved for you? Can you talk about how it's changed over time? What a great question. Semperad Astro. Hmm. It's my family motto. Oh, I mean, it is. it's my family crest. My family apparently goes back to Holland in 1603. And and on that family a crest or family tree, mm-hmm. it says Semper Ad Astra. Mm. And I've loved it from that moment to this. And it, it is, it, it's what I live. It's, it's, it's where I live is that, is that term. You're going to make me cry, so I'm going to get my act. <laughs> <laughs> um, romance. Ask the question again. How that romantic and, you know, what it, your sense of what it means to be romantic or your experience yeah. of that, you know. I guess I've just sort of lived it. You just lived it. Yeah. I just am a romantic. It's a pain in the neck. I cry at parades. <laughs> you know, I look in a baby carriage uh, that's going down this baby going down the street and say, oh boy, are you in for some rock and roll? Yeah. Um, I go into museums and I see all the little amulets and the pendants and I think somebody gave that to somebody a hundred thousand years ago. There's a love story there. Um, I love poetry because it captures the passion of people around the world. It gives me a great sense of unity with all of humanity that ever was and ever will be. Helen Fisher is Senior Research Fellow at Indiana University's Kinsey Institute and a member of the Center for Human Evolutionary Studies at Rutgers University. She's also the Chief Scientific Advisor to the Internet dating site Match.com. Her books include Anatomy of Love, A Natural History of Mating, Marriage, and Why We Stray, and Why We Love, The Nature and Chemistry of Romantic Love. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Malka Fenevesi, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bertina Davis, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, and Jeffrey Basoli. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. 
Humanity United, Advancing Human Dignity at Home and Around the World. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production.